Mark chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus declares here, or we read, excuse me, here, from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, let the little children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone and her daughter lying on the bed. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude, put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephrathah, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then they commanded him that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond all measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And Father, we humbly ask for your grace as we continue now in this time of worship. Lord, we offer this time to you that we would be sensitive to the ministry and the voice of your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, as always, that you'd prepare us accordingly and that you would now speak through what you've already spoken here in your written and your inspired word. So, Lord, give us what we need to hear this day from you through your word now. And we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think it is important if we love the Lord and if we're going to follow the Lord and if we desire to seek the Lord that it's helpful to know the heart and the mind of the Lord. It is essential for us to be aware what matters to Jesus. In this section that we're looking at this morning, the Holy Spirit gives to us really some wonderful insights, I believe, into the heart and the mind of the Lord. We see the nature of Jesus revealed in numerous ways throughout the events that Mark has recorded for us here in the last portion of chapter 7. Remember the backdrop, we are now at the peak of the popularity of Jesus's public ministry. At this point, the crowds are very large that are following him. There is continuous ministry work going on. There are lots of needs to be met among the multitudes of the people. And it is hard for both Jesus and for his disciples, who are his ministry team going around with him, to be able to get some time of rest or even to have, we might say, some downtime. 
Now, it's with that backdrop, we begin in our section here, in verse 24, Mark tells us that from there, he arose, and he went now to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So we find here in verse 24, a rare occasion where the Lord Jesus, notice, now leaves the land of Israel, and he travels far northward, crosses the border of Israel, going now outside of the land of Israel's territory. When the Bible tells us here, this is Tyre and Sidon, these were two coastal cities in the northern Mediterranean Sea area, both on the coast in the territory in that day of what was referred to as Phoenicia. And this area north of the border of Israel today we know as the country of Lebanon. So at this point, we find Jesus on a very rare occasion actually crossing the border of Israel, now going up among the Gentile nations. He's outside of Jewish territory now, reminding us, of course, that our Lord does care about reaching all people groups all nationalities, all ethnicities. He cares and loves for the entire world. And as he now goes up into this region here, verse 24, Mark tells us by the inspiration of the Spirit that he entered a house, it says, and notice it tells us he wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Now, the obvious question, why would Jesus enter into a house or go to a particular location and not want it to be known or not want to, you might say, be found out where he was staying? Well, I think the obvious conclusion would be most likely the answer is he was just wanting a time of disconnect, a little bit of downtime, we might refer to it as a brief occasion to lay low in order to briefly rest to be able maybe to ponder and think a little bit away from the busyness of the crowds and the routine ministry that was going on. And perhaps even as his ministry is coming closer to the time of his crucifixion and his resurrection will then ascend and go back into heaven, even maybe wanting a little bit more occasion for just some private fellowship together with his disciples to just have some time alone with those who he was close to, to be able to have some special time of bonding and interaction together, which I think reveals to us that it is not wrong, nor is it unspiritual. Sometimes, honestly, it's wise, it's healthy, and even, honestly, beneficial on occasion to briefly disconnect from routine activities, routine busyness, serving people, and to kind of maybe even go to a location where you cannot be found. And, and to honestly maybe just purposely disconnect in a way whereby you can somewhat, we might say, lay low. Now, though Jesus made himself available all the time when he was needed for help, we see at times the Lord trying on other occasions Remember, he took the disciples to a location where he said, come aside, let's go get some rest. And then instantaneously, shortly afterwards, they were interrupted. And he didn't refuse the interruption. He welcomed the interruption. Jesus always made himself available. But we do see in his humanity, there were times on his heart and on his mind that it would be valuable to disconnect, to rest, to recoup whether physically, again, remember, he was in a body of, of flesh. He was living as a man to recharge, to have a little quiet downtime, to think, 
to process some things amongst some of the busyness and the constant conversations? And can you imagine the continuous degree of questions that would go on for Jesus? You know, now that God's blessed us with with three son-in-laws, one of the things that my you know wife took notice of early on when our son-in-laws came and started becoming a part of our family, she would say it was like she would just wait during family occasions where one of them would say, "I have a Bible question. Can I ask you a Bible question? Can I ask you a Bible question?" Uh, and and I you know to me that's I, enjoyable. To me, I'd much rather talk about that than whatever you know the NFL or this or that or whatever to me I, I don't mind that at all but her's like oh here it comes we're gonna have Bible trivia again here it comes you're gonna ask them. <laughs> you know uh, and, and again just such a, a wonderful thing to realize that Jesus at times wanted to not only have a time to disconnect and recharge but also to you know spend time with those who were closest to him and look I point this out to your attention because it may indeed be the Lord from time to time even as it was on his heart and his mind to do this, that as his spirit works in you, it may be on his heart and his mind for you in your flesh to disconnect, to lay low temporarily, to briefly kind of just get away, to tuck yourself away and to have some time to think or just be with those who you're closest to, away from routine service or whatever it may be. And, and here my, 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 my balanced view in this, though it is not wise whatsoever, it is not wise to routinely isolate and to disconnect from people and to hide yourself away. And if you are prone to doing that, let me just say to you, that is always going to bring negative results in your life. And let me also say that is not consistent with Scripture especially if you're a Christian, because we are called to be individually members of one another. We're called to be body parts, and bodies are supposed to be connected, interconnected, to receive what you need as your part of the body from the rest of the body, and also to contribute your part of the body that you're not robbing the rest of the body by handicapping it. So be careful of isolation. Proverbs says, he who isolates himself rages against all wise counsel and seeks his own harm. Be very careful. However, you may justify your isolation, your disconnecting. It is inconsistent with scripture. It is not healthy. Now, that being said, to briefly disconnect, as Jesus would do, to temporarily, you know, get away, to lay low, if the Lord's prompting you to do that, to recharge, to think, to spend time with those who are important and precious to you, that's a valuable thing from time to time. Now, it is interesting, isn't it, that it tells us that, oh, Jesus did not want to be known where he was. He could not be hidden. And what a beautiful reminder that you know, the Lord's presence is such a wonderful, evident thing. It's hard to hide the presence of the Lord. And quite honestly, let us remember as the Lord's people, it should be difficult to hide the presence of Jesus, if you're finding it easy to hide the presence of the Lord at work in your life, something's going to awry there. It should be hard to hide the presence of Jesus if he's at work in your home or he's at work in your life. Well, verse 25 tells us that while he was there, he became discovered. And it says, a woman whose young daughter, verse 25, had an unclean spirit, heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. And the woman was a Greek, it says, a Syrophoenician by birth, 
And she kept asking Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. So the Lord is now approached by this desperate mother who notices begging for help for her daughter who's been enslaved by the powers of darkness. And this is what we have unfolding here. It tells us here in verse 25 uh, that this woman was, or excuse me, verse 26, that this woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth. Now, when it says she's a Greek, that's indicating she was non-Jewish, or we might better say, as we know, Gentiles. Any non-Jewish person was considered a Gentile, one of the Gentile nations, the other nations. So we know that she's born of a different nationality. It also tells us that she was a Syrophoenician native, which means she was from the Roman province of Syria, dwelling in the area of Phoenicia. That was her background, and that area was mainly characterized by the worship of all types of pagan deities. It was an area characterized by many evil practices. Historically, that region also was connected to the Philistine people. And if you remember the Philistines from the Old Testament, they were continuous enemies of Israel. Now, culturally, Gentiles and Jews did not associate. There was very, very strong animosity and hatred between these two people groups, and a Gentile woman would be completely going outside the boundaries of what is socially acceptable to approach a Jewish rabbi like we see her doing here in this scene, going and seeking out Jesus' help. This would typically not be welcomed conduct, and it would be frowned upon, and oftentimes it would just be refused altogether if she approached him which makes sense. The account in Matthew's gospel of this same event, it tells us his own disciples were saying to him when this woman came, send her away. She keeps asking things from us, send her away. Now, what's interesting is the interaction of setting aside this ethnic tension and cultural division was unusual. But if you think of the events that are going on, this woman's daughter in this very severe, horrible condition Boy, it is absolutely amazing to realize how when life gets really hard, certain things that used to be important can change real quick. And all of a sudden now, there's a desperate situation, there's a hardship, a difficulty. She's humbled, she's broken, and all of a sudden she sets aside, and everybody in the scene ultimately sets aside all the worthless, petty grievances all the racial tensions and you know, ethnic animosity, that's all set aside, and now everybody just pays attention to what really matters, which is people, and helping people, and doing what's necessary for hurting lives. And you know, sometimes, I tell you, despite past issues, addressing a more important current situation is the wiser and higher road to take, no matter what's happened in the past. Well, we see the woman's problem was pretty intense. It says she had a young daughter, we're told, verse 25, who had an unclean spirit, a demonic spirit dwelling within her, and she came and fell at Jesus' feet, it says, and kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, Matthew 15 informs us of this woman describing the demon uh, possession of her daughter. It tells us that the demon was tormenting her daughter severely and that she was suffering terribly. Gives a little bit more picture to what's going on, tormenting her severely, and she's suffering terribly. So we can only imagine the ruinous 
symptomatic effects of this demonic spirit literally residing within her daughter, maybe the physical problems that it was causing her and her health. Maybe it was, uh, you know, uh, emotional issues, perhaps, you know, mental dysfunction and struggles, maybe wild behaviors. Maybe this demon was causing her to behave in ways that were sinful and dark and, and deviant, just wild behavior as this demon is just ravaging the life of her, it says, young daughter. And this mother realizes the powers of darkness have taken control of her young daughter's life. And she is heartbroken and desperate like any parent witnessing the damage being done to her child, watching her daughter in terrible suffering, and nothing was helping her daughter. No one was able to resolve the situation. She could not, no one else could. But then it tells us here that this woman, verse 25, heard about Jesus. So she heard the testimonies of other people who Jesus had become involved in their life and he had transformed them. He had healed people. He had helped change lives. And the word of the Lord was reaching all the way up there to the area of Tyre and Sidon. And she's heard about the work of Jesus in the, in the lives of other people, how he has given other families, their children back that they were struggling with problems with. And this begins to stir in her a glimmer of hope. And now belief is beginning to arise in her heart. Maybe he could do that for me too. I've heard what he did in that person's life, and I've heard what the Lord's done in this situation. And she now, with hope and a degree of faith, is thinking that Jesus can resolve her dilemma. And it says that she comes, falls at his feet, and it says in the language there, notice, it says she kept, verse 26, kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So notice, she approaches Jesus with tremendous humility. She comes very humbly, falling down at his feet, and literally, the Bible tells us, begging for his help. And consider what's going on in the scene here. She's not coming to Jesus for a private meeting. She comes, falls down at his feet, and is begging and pleading for his help, and she does it in a public setting in front of at least his disciples and a few other people in the household. Now, that takes all the more setting aside, if you would, right, your pride your dignity, to literally say, I don't care who's in the room. I'm going to beg the Lord for help right now. And she falls down at his feet in desperation. And notice also, she doesn't just come humbly, but she also seeks the Lord directly. And we even see here, not once, but continually. And she's obviously also very passionate in her plea. She came to the realization, nothing and no other person can fix this dilemma. Only the Lord can. So she goes directly to him and she keeps asking and she is unafraid to even beg and plead very passionately for the Lord's help. And she's a great example for us when we find ourselves maybe dealing with a major dilemma or a very severe issue and something that is just completely outside of our ability to fix or resolve, knowing what Jesus has done in other lives knowing what we read and see Jesus did, and knowing the Bible tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, those things and understanding what we've heard about the Lord 
in the word of God, what we've heard about the Lord, things he's done in other people's lives should always give us a measure of hope and a measure of faith to go directly to Jesus humbly and to plead and to beg and to believe and to ask that the Lord, if he wills, can miraculously bring powerful change in a situation we have no control over. That the Lord is able to do something to fix or resolve an issue that no human being has ever been able to because the Almighty Lord has limitless power, right, over every situation. There's no circumstance that's outside of his capability. And as she's pleading with Jesus, what is interesting is Matthew 15, in that account, it tells us that as she starts pleading with Jesus, because notice it says she kept asking. Matthew tells us in his account that when she asked Jesus, at first he was quiet and he gave no response to her whatsoever. Now, the disciples, as they saw Jesus not respond and delay in acting to her request, they interpreted, or I should say they misinterpreted that as if Jesus was just not interested in helping her. And so then they were trying to shoo her away. And they wrongly interpreted Jesus' delay in response by proposing that she should just be sent away, that maybe she was a bother or she wasn't worthy of help, and that the Lord did not want to do anything for her. Yet the reality is that delay of Jesus in waiting to answer her request and give her her response actually was the exact opposite. It had nothing to do with the fact that Jesus did not want to help, nor that he was ignoring her or dismissing her situation. Rather, Jesus saw her deep humility. Jesus saw her tremendous faith in his goodness and his power. And Jesus, therefore, was purposely working in a way to just further develop her faith, to further strengthen her confidence in him, and to reveal to her more about himself through this process. See, you have to understand, for Jesus, performing a miracle was the easy part. For him to do a miracle was no problem at all, right? In this situation, other occasions, he doesn't even show up at the woman's house. He just says, go away, your daughter's fine. And from a distance, he miraculously heals her daughter. The miracle was the easy part, but Jesus was more concerned about the cultivation of relationship between himself and her. Jesus's greater interest was cultivating a deeper relationship and a person coming into right relationship with him, a person continuing to develop in relationship with him, and therefore he works in this situation, understand, for the purpose of doing things like developing faith, growing her understanding of what it means to see him work, because Jesus knows that those are the things that have the greatest value long term. Those are the things that matter the most. And look, let's remember the Lord often works in lives. The Lord often works in our situations with a larger goal in mind than just fixing the problem. Often that's what we're fixated on, just fixing the problem. And Jesus always gets maximum return on the investment of everything that he does. Often the Lord is doing multiple things at once and we don't even realize it. And we think it's just about fixing the problem. And Jesus is going, fixing the problem is the easy part. Fixing your heart, Tony, that's a big challenge for me. Developing your faith, 
that's something that is a little bit more work for me. Helping you to see me more clearly and know me more you know, intimately, these are the things that I'm concerned about. I can fix the problem easily, but sometimes the Lord, whether it's a delay in answering a prayer, whether it's the way he works in a situation, he's looking beyond just fixing the problem and is trying beyond that to do things to cultivate us spiritually. Maybe it's to bring us into right relationship with him initially. That's how some of us maybe came to Christ. Maybe it's working in such a way because his goal is, I'm gonna fix the problem, but I'm also trying to bring you deeper in our relationship through this problem. I'm trying to reveal things to you. I'm trying to show you things. Maybe it's trying to bring further humility in our lives to knock some wind out of our sails or address our pride a little bit. Maybe it's to strengthen our faith and to allow us to see what it means to trust the Lord and give him a chance to work. Maybe it's to deepen our understanding. His primary goal in experiences and lessons is always to further your relationship spiritually because that's what matters long-term. That's what has the greatest value. Now, as this Gentile woman comes, she's pleading for Jesus with help, and we're gonna see as we go on now, he wants to help her in more ways than just one, more than just the obvious, which is delivering her daughter. He cares about that, but he wants to help her in more ways than just fixing that initial problem. Look what goes on in verse 27. It says, Jesus then speaks and said to her, First thing you weren't expecting to hear, let the little children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, again, I can imagine as that first got heard, that could easily be misinterpreted, but we have to put ourselves in the setting that they're in to understand that she, as well as everyone else there, would clearly grasp where Jesus was going with. He's using an analogy here in verse 27, not to insult this woman, but honestly to illustrate a spiritual truth for her. He's signifying to her by bringing this to her attention that as the promised Messiah of Israel, the promised Messiah of the Jews, that he was sent first and foremost to the children of Israel as God's chosen people. And that the priority of the Jewish Messiah when he came was that he would first, as priority, offer God's salvation to the chosen people, the children of Israel, first and foremost, as a Jewish deliverer, as the Jewish predicted Messiah who was sent. And after offering himself rightly to them first, and after they rejected him to a degree and rejected his salvation, God always had in mind that there would be a secondary phase of opportunity where the salvation of Jesus would be offered as well to the Gentile nations, just like it was initially in priority first to the Jewish people. Again, what did Jesus say? John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What's important to understand is yet still God had an order in how he would offer his salvation to the world. God had an order. God had a priority. It was first to the children of Israel. Paul implies this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where he says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. 
So with this understanding in mind, Jesus uses this household analogy of the children and the little dog under the table waiting for the scraps and is pointing out this idea here that a parent's first responsibility and their first priority is to their child first. Before the little pet dog in the family gets fed, it would not be right for a parent to take a food that rightly belongs to their child as their first priority and to feed the dog first, and then when the dog is done, then put it up on the high chair for the child, right? No parent would do that. The idea there is it's not wrong to take care of the little dog, the household pet. It's just wrong to reverse the order of care. That would be inappropriate. And so the appropriate order is to rightly be observed. Now, so understanding that, Jesus here is not directly calling even the woman. He's not directly calling her a dog. He's not insulting her, diminishing her value. He's just using this analogy to illustrate the priority and order of his messianic ministry and bringing salvation. And he's also, as we can tell, because he knows what's going on in this woman's heart, he's also testing her faith. And he's testing her spiritual persistence to see how she's going to respond. Well, she clearly grasps the method of reasoning that he was also testing her faith and persistence. Because look what goes on. Verse 28, she answered and said to him, how dare you call me a dog? No, right? She doesn't say that. She, she says, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. So she goes right with the analogy because she knows where he's going with this. She understands the concept of what's going on here, and she responds in like manner to show Jesus further her humility, her spiritual persistence, her serious faith and belief that he can help. Again, we all know this picture. She says, Lord, what you said is true. It would not be right to feed the dog before you feed the little children first. But she said, Lord, we also all know with our little household dogs, she says, that even the little dogs underneath the table waiting there as an opportunist, they eat the children's crumbs. Now, again, we understand this. If we think in our own comprehension of a pet dog in the household today, a dog does not care about its status being honored Right? It does not care about recognition, doesn't care about its image. It's not concerned about its rights being respected. It's just wanting and desires to have its need and hunger be met, and it gladly enjoys any blessing from above. <laughs> right? That's a dog's mentality. The dog's concern isn't, um, I feel like my image is being assaulted here. Uh, this is not good for my reputation. A dog cares nothing of that. All a dog cares about is its desire being met. It's not worried about its status. A dog is a savvy opportunist waiting for anything that falls from the child's eating area, and it gladly, as an unworthy recipient, is content to dwell underneath the table and to take anything at all that would possibly come as a way to bless or to help it. That dog is just hoping for mercy and for grace as an unworthy recipient. And it has no issue with that whatsoever. It is completely content to take whatever the child drops and it will gladly take it. It will enjoy the benefits without any complaint. As long as the dog is there, it's grateful for anything. And after the child is attended to first, the dog is ministered to, you might say, by the same provisions, but it's just child first, 
secondary to the dog. So as she makes this comment, she's expressing great humility. She's stating she appreciates anything that Jesus would offer to her. What she's conveying in saying this is the realization of her condition, and she is content to receive, basically, she's saying, Lord, I'll take the leftovers. I'll even take the scraps. You want to talk about a woman that displays tremendous humility that could teach us all a lesson. She's not worried about her image. She's not worried about her status. She doesn't have an entitlement mentality. I deserve, I deserve this. I'm special. Her mentality is, Lord, I don't think I deserve anything. Lord, I'm a nobody. Uh, Lord, Lord, I have no problem at all. I, I view myself as a dog sometimes, Lord. I, I have nothing to bring to the table. I realize I don't claim anything as being deserved by you. So, Lord, I'll gladly take anything that you'll offer to me. And what she also says when she says the little dog eats from the crumbs that fall from the child's table, she's also conveying there tremendous faith in the power and the goodness of Jesus. She's in essence saying there, Lord, you're so great in power, even a crumb from you, even the smallest portion of your involvement in my life will benefit me greatly. Lord, even the smallest portion of your power given towards me, it will be a tremendous help and benefit in my life. So she's displaying incredible humility incredible faith in the power and the goodness of Jesus. And notice, rather than just give up, you want to talk about showing spiritual persistence? She stays at it. She's asking, asking. She's trying to get shooed away. Then Jesus makes this statement. She doesn't take insult or issue with it. She just stays at it and, and says, Lord, I'll even take the crumbs. And she's very persistent, showing her great faith, believing even the smallest help from Jesus is very important. What a beautiful attitude, again, as I said, of humility, that we would know what it means to approach the Lord with humility, that we wouldn't have an attitude of, well, I deserve this, or I deserve that, or look, let's be very candid. What we deserve is called the lake of fire. That's what we deserve. Anything beyond the lake of fire is mercy. And anything beyond that is grace. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is then getting what you don't deserve. All the blessings, all the goodness, all the kindness of the Lord, and that we would have such humility when we come as unworthy recipients of his grace, and that we, like this woman, would have wonderful confidence, serious belief in the goodness and the power of the Lord, that like this woman, we would say, Lord, even the tiny crumbs of your work, the smallest help that you can give. Your power is so great. Your goodness is so incredible. Well, look how Jesus responds. He says to her, verse 29, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she came to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. So notice Jesus' response to her request reveals something to us about the Lord here, and that's this. We might say that he has stirred by spiritual persistence. He is stirred by humility. He is stirred by faith in his goodness and his power. He says to this woman, for what you just declared in faith, and that's how he saw it, he says, you can depart in peace, go to your house, that demon is gone out of your daughter. It tells us, and again, Matthew's account, 
in chapter 15, that he actually said to this woman, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. He acknowledged her great faith in front of everyone. He was amazed by her incredible belief exercised towards him, and she sent home, and the miracle transpired, and everything changed that hour. Instantaneously, she goes home and finds the power of the Lord had accomplished this. Again, what a valuable picture here of the Lord's nature. We see, as I said, what matters to Jesus. One thing very clearly we've seen is that mattered to Jesus is that Jesus is stirred by things, folks, like humility in our lives. Jesus is stirred by spiritual persistence, not just giving up. Why well, prayed about it? How many times? Once. I prayed about it. I prayed three times for that. You know, I've been praying for three days. Three whole days I've been praying for that. Spiritual persistence continues. She she pleaded, she pleaded, she pleaded. She fell on her face in front of a bunch of people in humility, pleading with the Lord. And what else does she display? Faith in Jesus's goodness and faith in Jesus's power. She believed, Lord, you're so good. You don't just take care of the children. You, you, you take care of everybody. You take care of everybody. And Lord, even the tiniest bit of your power, I believe it's more than sufficient. We should remember these things and put them into practice. Remember Luke 18? It tells us that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Because that's an easy thing to do when we've been praying for any period of time to lose heart and to just think, well, it doesn't even make any sense to ask anymore. Jesus illustrated in that passage in Luke 18, remember the persistent widow and the persistent widow, Jesus said, the judge didn't give her her way because he was a good judge or even because he cared. He just was like, you know what? She is not going to give up. <laughs> so, okay, she ain't going to give up. And she got rewarded for her persistence. And Jesus equated that to great faith. It was faith that didn't lose heart, and it just persistently kept pleading and pleading and pleading. Well, look at me, verse 31. Jesus then, it says, departs from that region of Tyre and Sidon. And now it goes down through the midst of the region of the Decapolis, the ten cities, as it was known, to the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus now journeys southward from up north. He goes around the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee to this region of the ten cities. And this was the area, remember, in Mark chapter 5, where the demoniac was delivered by Jesus miraculously. And remember, after the demoniac was set free from the demon, remember, he requested that he could go travel around with Jesus and his ministry team. And you remember what happened. Jesus denied him to go travel with the ministry team. In fact, Jesus, Mark 5, 19, said to him, it says he did not permit him, but said, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had compassion on you. So Jesus doesn't let him go on the ministry journey with everyone else. Jesus says, no, go back to your local area Tell all your family and friends about the work of the Lord that's happened in your life. He sends them home to evangelize locally, and the man faithfully did it, and guess what that did? It prepared the way for future ministry in the region of the Decapolis territory where we see now Jesus going to because he goes to this region, and people in the region all know about Jesus, and they're all bringing their people to Jesus now. Why? Because this man faithfully did what the Lord assigned him to do. And look, this is a good reminder to us. Oftentimes, Jesus will do things in ways where he's always preparing for the next steps down the road. When Jesus told that man, look, you can't travel with us. 
I want you to go home, tell everybody in your community what the Lord's done for you. Jesus told him that back in Mark chapter 5. Why? Because Jesus is God, and Jesus knows in chapter 7 he's going to be journeying back to that region again, so he sends this guy as his advanced team. You go tell everybody about the Lord, because then when I come back through the area, it will prepare for what I want to do at the next stage and the next step. And look, folks, sometimes the Lord is working in those ways. Oftentimes, the Lord is doing things now. The Lord asks you to do something today. The Lord assigns you something currently. And the reason why is not just the current moment. It's also because he also sees what's coming down the road. And he's preparing the, the way ahead of time. Often the Lord does things presently, but he's also preparing for something that's coming ahead. He's getting you ready. He's getting other people ready. And I say that as a word of encouragement, never underestimate the importance of being faithful to what the Lord assigned you to do, because you have no idea what he asks of you or what he assigns you to do may be the very thing that connects what you do to the next thing he wants to do. And you don't want to miss that. So be faithful in the present Know that it always contributes to what's coming ahead. Jesus now comes to this region and ministry begins to happen. It says they brought to him, verse 32, one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. So trusting Jesus would have compassion to help this man, they bring him to Jesus. Matthew's account tells us they were bringing lots of people to Jesus. Mark just focuses in on this one man, and this man's condition, notice two things were told. It says he could not hear, and he had a speech impediment, which means he either had a limited ability to speak, or maybe he had no capability to speak whatsoever. This man's disability caused him to suffer with limited ability with human interactions. He can't hear. He's not able to articulate in conversations. He has a limited ability to express himself, and the people bring him to Jesus, and they start begging. Notice again, they're pleading. They beg Jesus, please, would you lay your hand on him and help him? Verse 33 says, Jesus took him aside from the multitude. Notice, Jesus wasn't seeking to make a public show of his ministry work or of this healing. Jesus would not have done very well today in modern Christianity. He wouldn't have had big, large, public, entertainment-type crusades to display his miracles. Jesus takes him aside from the crowd, gets the man alone, and we're going to see in the verses below, he's going to tell him after the healing, don't even tell anybody I did that. Jesus wants to give dignity to this man who's in a hardship and allow his love to be sensed, and he wants tenderness and personal connection with the man. He's not worried about the show. He's not worried about the publicity. It says he brings him aside, verse 33, and look what happens. It says, he put his fingers in his ears, Jesus spat, and then he touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, we'll just take the English translation, be opened. Immediately, verse 35, his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. So notice, in this very unique way, Jesus performs another healing, and notice, very different than other healings that he did. You notice, Jesus never often used the same pattern with healings, because he didn't want people to get caught up into formulas. So this occasion, he uniquely heals this man in a very different way, I believe, likely to connect with the man in his unique circumstances. 
I believe that's what Jesus is doing here. Because Jesus has a wonderful way, does he not, of meeting people right where they are to connect with them. And so you notice Jesus uses the sense of touch he can't hear. He's unable to articulate and communicate. So Jesus uses the sense of touch, what he can do, to communicate with him in a way that this guy could track with. It tells us Jesus puts his fingers in his ears. And you have to wonder if Jesus was going, I know your ears. They don't work. And then Jesus spits to draw attention to the mouth so he can sense or or see. And then he touches his tongue and he says, your mouth. I know it's frustrating. Doesn't work right. And then it says in the text that Jesus looks up to heaven toward God, indicating to the man God knows. And then he sighs, a, a display of kind of heavy hardness or grief. And in a sense, what Jesus was conveying to him is, God knows you've been suffering. And he knows this has been hard for you. And he's aware of your suffering. And he understands your hardship and he cares. And again, he's displaying the heart of God who's compassionate towards human suffering because God recognizes all of human suffering is directly tied to the entrance of sin that came into the world. So he expresses to this man this tender compassion, and then it says he declares, verse 35, with his authority as God to the man, verse 34, excuse me, that his ears would just be opened, that his tongue, his mouth would be opened and loosed, And miraculously, instantaneously, verse 45, the Holy Spirit says, immediately, not after speech therapy, immediately, this was an instantaneous miracle, immediately the power of God brought a miracle of healing, immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, it says, Plainly, Jesus brought this miracle, and we could only imagine what that must have been like for this guy. All of a sudden, he can hear sounds. Was that the first words that he heard? Be opened. We don't know. All of a sudden, he can begin to articulate and speak. And again, this experience reveals to us of the heart of our Lord that he is inclined to alleviate human suffering. If the passage conveys anything, the prior miracle and then this one right afterwards, demonic destruction in a life, now somebody struggling with a disability, a pain, health issues, suffering physically, Jesus has authority over all, and it clearly reveals the heart of the Lord that he wants to help alleviate suffering in human lives. It also reveals to us that Jesus wants to restore what's been damaged within lives. Those kind of things matter to Jesus. Now, If I can make a quick application before moving on, as we look at the miracle physically, to me, it also encourages me and is impressed upon my heart. It reminds us as well, I think, that when something at times goes wrong, and this happens, sometimes things go wrong and communication becomes hindered. And all of a sudden, people shut their ears and they won't listen anymore. All of a sudden, sometimes things happen, and it's not just maybe people won't listen anymore. Sometimes people aren't speaking anymore. And so they won't hear anymore, they won't listen anymore, and they ain't got nothing to say anymore. But you know what I can tell you this? The Lord wants to help by His power to open the channels 
of communication. Sometimes the Lord says, it's time for things to be opened again. It's time for you to open your ears again. It's time for you to open your mouth again. Enough of the silence, enough of the stopping up your ears. And sometimes Jesus wants to restore even communication miraculously amongst relationships, whether someone's shutting out God's voice or people perhaps shutting out the voices of one another. Verse 36 goes on then to tell us, then Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more, notice, he commanded them, the more they widely proclaimed it. Now, of course, it's somewhat humorous, but true. Jesus tells us, go into all the world, preach the gospel. We don't. He tells people in this day, don't tell anyone what I did. And the more he tells them, don't tell people, they keep spreading the word around. Again, Jesus knows that if they just go broadcast this around, he's understanding it's going to just increase the, the crowds because people are miracle chasers. And so he understands this is just going to bring everybody out of the woodwork, and they're all just going to be chasing after the miracle. So he's trying to keep what he did quiet. It was for the man. It wasn't for a miracle show. It was out of love to help the man. Look at verse 37. It concludes our text telling us there, and they were astonished. I bet they all were beyond measure saying, he has done all things well. He makes the death, uh, both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So as people saw what Jesus did, but be aware, as they saw how Jesus helped people, as they saw the way that Jesus served, the way that Jesus operated, the way that Jesus ministered, notice they said descriptively of our Lord, he has done all things well. He has done all things well. That term well in the Greek is a phrase that could be translated with excellence, beautifully, done right, with no reason to blame. In other words, as the people in that day observed how Jesus operated, how Jesus worked, the way that Jesus did things, they realized he does things really well. He does things with excellence, with a standard of, of, of high you know, you know, importance, and they noticed that whatever Jesus handled and whatever Jesus was performing, it was done with excellence in its standard. He does things well. He does them excellent. And to me, this is a beautiful display, again, of what matters to the Lord. What matters to Jesus in the way that he functions, it matters to Jesus that he would do things well. Jesus cares about how things are done. He does things well. He does things excellent. He does things right, if you would. He uses high standards of excellence. And folks, if that mattered to the Lord, it should matter to us as representatives of the Lord. And as those who the spirit of the Lord, the Bible says, dwells within us. Christ is in us. And so guess what? If Christ is in me, may I yield to his desires to want to see things done well to see things done with excellence in that quality and that standard. We should seek to do things well with excellence, and especially when we're ministering for the Lord, that we would seek to have a standard of excellence. May people notice the Lord's work in your life makes you do things well, that they would recognize that. And may we at times be able to recognize that when the Lord is directing Things get handled really well. 
And if something's not being handled well, the problem is it's being directed in the flesh and not by the Lord. 